take a Bible, any version, any size, any language that you can read, and turn to the book of Romans. I would really like to do a series on the book of Romans, and uh, hopefully in the near future I will do that. Today, this is just a one-off sermon. I remember watching a movie some time ago called The Passion of the Christ. And it was very graphic in the way it portrayed Jesus this seemingly innocent man suffering, but why? Well, the movie never told you why. It certainly communicated and kept your interest when you saw, went through the, saw the suffering of this man who was falsely accused, who was tortured, it graphically showed him being whipped, and those whips would have maybe bone inserted in them, these leather whips, and it would just tear the flesh out. And Mel Gibson was very clever at showing that in a very colorful and graphic way on the screen. You have to go to a book like Romans to really understand the why of Jesus' death on the cross. Yes, when you saw this man suffering on the screen, at least my heart really went out to him. And emotionally, it was a very powerful thing. But your mind was not engaged as to the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross. That's what I'd like to touch on briefly this morning. And I feel that there's uh, a number of places in the New Testament where that is reasoned out quite well. And one of the best places is the book of Romans. So as we open the book of Romans, let's uh, ask the Spirit of God to open our minds. Father, at times we think we know a lot about you and your word, the Bible. And the reality is, Lord, that we're dealing with depths that, that we can hardly comprehend, even on a good day. So I pray, Lord, that as spiritual things are spiritually discerned, that you'll enlighten us through your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts, open our minds, and help us to fall in love with Jesus for his sacrifice for us on the cross. In his name we pray, amen. In Romans chapter 1, we have, in fact, I think it would be good if I gave you the page reference in the Bible in the pew. We have a man called Paul writing. Now, it is interesting, and it's worth spending a moment to think of this man, Paul, before he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. 
And there is an account in Philippians where he talks of how he regarded himself before he met Jesus on this Damascus road. And he was a man who was highly educated and he was proud of it. For he sat at the feet of a man called Gamaliel, one of the finest Jewish leaders ever, teachers ever, and Paul was certainly one of his brightest students. And Paul could boast of a lineage, and he could boast of the things that he had as a Jewish man at that time. He viewed the Bible in a certain way. He viewed the Jewish nation in a certain way. And when he met Jesus Christ, he suddenly got a very, very different perspective. Many of you know that story. We're not going to go into that part of it today. You can read about it in the book of Acts. There's a number of accounts of the conversion of, of Saul into this man, Paul. So here's Paul, Jewish, at this time is a Jewish pastor. Some think of him as a theologian, because he had a theologian's mind, and he certainly had a theologian's training, but he, he learned this, the important truth that I'm going to speak about today uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of who? Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. He never fails to mention that name. Called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So today we are going to talk about, not so much about his calling and being set apart, but we're going to talk about this gospel of God. And it's introduced there right at the beginning of the book of Romans, so we don't miss the point. This gospel of God, this good news, if you have different, we have a number of different translations here today, this is good news about Jesus Christ. Yes, he died for us, but in what sense is that good news? Because it certainly wasn't considered good news by his disciples, was it? Did they embrace his sacrifice on the cross? Did they understand why he was dying on the cross? No. Certainly it wasn't embraced by the Jewish population the Jewish rulers, yes, many of them schemed for Jesus to die on the cross, so they were happy. But as far as it being good news, the way that we think of good news as Christians, very few would understand it that way. Do you remember when the angels came and visited the, at the birth of Jesus? They understood that Jesus was good news. So they put that into music. They sang the good news of Jesus Christ. But of course, many people did not understand. And then a man like Paul would come along, he would persecute the Christians, he would think it was terrible what was being taught about this criminal that was put on the cross. And then eventually he meets Jesus Christ, he is converted, he is born again, his whole mindset changes, and he is taught, the good news, the significance of why Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he's, he's presenting that, and he's reasoning that out. This is very important. He's, reason, he's not just declaring it. He's reasoning it out in a book like 
Romans. So let's jump on a little bit to verse um, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 and verse 18. Because there's a few things that I mentioned there that I want us to think about today. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew, for the Gentile. For in the gospel are righteousness from God. I want you to think about this phrase here. The righteousness of God is revealed. It's declared before mankind. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written. Now he's quoting the Old Testament. The righteous will live, how? By faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And what we have from this point is a long account of the sinfulness of mankind, the sinfulness of human beings, whether that be non-Jewish people, Gentile people, and then eventually in chapter 2, or whether it be Jewish people. And he brings things together after this long explanation on the sinfulness of man in chapter 3. Ooh, somebody's underlined this part here. That's a no-no. You never underline a Bible, especially if it's in the pews. Anyway, maybe they've underlined it because it's so important. Verse 19 of chapter 3, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that's all sinful mankind, not in Christ, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Uh, We were mentioning in our Sabbath school this morning about some public sins and how people don't want to take responsibility for their behavior. That's the day and age in which we live, right? Here it says it's best if we shut our mouths, stop making excuses, because we're all held accountable before God. We also studied this morning about this shaming and blaming business of Adam and Eve. Sinful humanity does not want to take responsibility for its behavior. But there always is a judgment day. There always is a day of accounting. There's not one sin that you and I can commit, whether it be a white sin or a really black sin, a big sin or a little sin, There's not one sin that can be ignored by God, right? And so he says here, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight. No one will be right with God by observing the law, by trying to do things to please God. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So we've had this long section in chapter 1, in chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 
dealing with the sin problem, with the lawlessness of human beings. Every one of us in this room has a sin problem, right? And that sin problem can only be rectified through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then he says in verse 21, but now, which are the most important words in Romans, maybe but now is the most important, but now a righteousness from God apart from law. You know the Jews had this huge emphasis on law-keeping. When Paul was a student at the feet of someone like Gamaliel, he was being taught how to interpret the law. Now, he wasn't becoming a lawyer in that sense, but everything was, his whole mindset was law. And when he met Jesus Christ, his new mindset became grace. So, but now, that little phrase is highly significant in verse 21. A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So this righteousness, this righteousness by faith, this new concept is something that has been declared just in the New Testament. Hey, I'm a New Testament Christian. You ever heard that? We have large sections of Christianity who never, ever read the Old Testament. But what Paul is saying here is this righteousness by faith is found where? Verse 21. Look at your Bibles. Now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which, what? Someone's testifying about this righteousness by faith. Who is it? The law and the prophets. What does he mean by the law and the prophets? He means the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the only Bible that they had in Jesus' day. That's what he's talking about. So how could a whole nation, especially people like Paul, who had the best of the best in education on the Word of God, how could they have missed it so easily? It's pretty mind-boggling. When we were in chapter 1, didn't I say that this is now quoting the Old Testament? The righteous shall live by faith. That's taken from Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament books. So don't jump over any of these words here. They're all highly significant. Some people think this is the most important portion of Scripture. So the law and the prophets testify to this righteousness from God. It's all through the Old Testament. Those of us that studied these study guides this morning, we had a number of adult classes that were studying this morning. We were into the book of Genesis, for example. And we saw how everything was so good. 
And then by the time you get to the third chapter, I mean, that's pretty early in the book, probably early in human history also, we see that things go so bad. We see this rebellion against God on the part of Eve, on the part of Adam, Cain and Abel, it falls on the human race. Disobedience, sin, and rebellion against God. And, and I'm glad in our lesson we got to Abraham. We barely got to Abraham in my class, but at least it was there in the lesson. It was there for you to study. And when we get to Abraham, who is mentioned in, uh, in the book of Romans, book of Galatians, and, and Hebrews, and other books of, of the New Testament, as a very, very important figure. Why was Abraham so important? Because Abraham typifies shows us what righteousness by faith is all about. God came to this man, Abraham, took him out of his pagan background and was going to form and did form a nation, a new group of people around him. The man was given tremendous promises by God. We looked at one of those promises, for example, in Genesis chapter 12. And I'll just quickly turn to that, Genesis chapter 12. There are a number of appearances of God before Abraham where he explains the relationship he will have with him and the gospel, the good news of the gospel. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Tremendous promise, don't you think? How would you feel if God appeared to you and made such an, an astounding promise to you? And the Scriptures teach, as we carry on reading in Genesis, that Abraham or Abram believed God. Maybe he didn't really fully understand everything. I'm sure he didn't. This was a gradual revelation that God gave to him. He's not going to understand everything all at once. But he believed and he trusted. God had said it. I may not quite understand it, but I believe it. Can you relate to that? Most of what we believe as Christians we cannot fully understand. Certainly what we're speaking about today, the significance of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be studying that for how long? Eternity. That's a long time. Plus, then we will not have defective minds like we have now. We will have renewed minds without sin. And yet we will be studying death on the plan of salvation, the significance of, of Jesus dying on the cross for eternity in our hearts, I, I assume will constantly be overwhelmed with the love of God as we plumb, begin to plumb the depths of salvation. I don't understand how Jesus could be born of a virgin, do you? I don't understand how Jesus can be divine and human at the same time, do you? 
I don't understand how God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Bible teaches that he is. So there are many mysteries we don't fully understand, and yet we are encouraged that what is revealed to us, that we ought to wrap our little minds around it and try and, with God's help, understand. And remember, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, Paul says. So it's not just having a great brain, which very few of us have, and it's not just being spiritual, which very few of us are. It's a dependence on God, and it's asking God to un unravel, unveil these things before us. Help me, Lord, to understand your holy word. We don't read the Bible like we read maybe a newspaper. So the Lord and the prophets testify about this righteousness by faith. And this righteousness from God, verse 22, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, it doesn't say that this faith comes to all. Paul is not teaching that all get saved, is he? No, we call that universalism. And people who spend a lot of time focusing on the love of God often end up believing in universalism, that God is so loving, how could he destroy anybody? It seems a contradiction in terms. People don't understand everything. I've already said that just a moment ago. Therefore, let's give them a second chance. The Bible teaches this is our chance. Now is the day of salvation. There's not going to be a second chance on the other side, so to speak. And we, the Bible certainly does not teach that everyone born on planet Earth will be saved, but those who do what? What does our text say? Those who have faith and believe in the death or the life and death of Jesus Christ. There's no difference. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That's kind of like a summary statement of chapters 1, 2, and 3 and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. Many are not happy with that translation, and, I, and maybe I can spend a few minutes explaining why. King James has propitiation. That might seem a difficult word, but at least you can pick a dictionary up and figure it out. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice, and so on. So those are the verses that I want to deal with this morning. Up to verse 25. And I want to break down a little bit some of these terms. One of the most important terms I want us to understand is in verse 25, where in the NIV it says sacrifice of atonement. Now I understand, I think I understand why they have translated the word propitiation that way. But it may not be the best way. What does propitiation mean? What does propitiation mean? Now if you have a good study Bible, and I would consider this one that I'm using this morning a good study Bible, then it should have some kind of explanation on that phrase. 
So it's in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3. And as I look at that, it says, the Greek for this phrase, the phrase propitiation, or what the NIV calls sacrifice of atonement, speaks of a sacrifice that satisfies what? What does propitiation satisfy? What does it satisfy? Who does it satisfy? God. It satisfies God. So here in this explanation, it says, it says that satisfies the righteous wrath of God. Do you remember in chapter 1? This is the reason I took you into chapter 1. In verse 18, he introduced this concept of the wrath of God. Now, here's where some Christians get really uncomfortable. In fact, I had a a long matriarchal uh, lady in Oakland who says, Pastor, stop preaching on the wrath of God. And I think I'd preached two sermons on it up to that point. And I'd preached a whole lot of sermons on the grace of God. So she was all for the grace of God, but not for the wrath of God. And I'll tell you something, folks, you'll never, ever understand the grace of God until you understand the wrath of God. The wrath of God, His hatred of sin in all of its forms, in all of its shapes. So when you look in church history, that's something we should look into, you know. See how God has worked through the centuries in the Christian church. Know our own denominational history. Many of us, many Seventh-day Adventists don't know their own denominational history. There is a book that I used a, a long time ago and read a long time ago by Mervyn Maxwell, who was, who was one of my professors at Andrews. He's passed away now, uh, called Tell It to the World. Any of you remember the book, Tell It to the World? It was written in a kind of interesting way. He was a real clever storyteller, and he took Adventist history and kind of made it very easy to, to read. But we should know something of how God has worked in, in our history, in Christian Christian history, and as you look into Christian history, you'll find that some of the, the men and women that God has used in the most powerful way have always done what is called the law work. Held up the Ten Commandments. Held up the standard of God. The righteousness of God in that sense. Until we can see clearly how far short we fall of the standards of God how out of a right relationship with Him we are. And then, and only then, do they bring in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I leave this building today, I would hope that if you have a day off on July 4, that before you get out of bed, you'll be saying, Lord, who today? You want me to tell good news too. Give me opportunities to share your plan of salvation with whoever, whoever will listen. And I tell you, if you just go out and talk about the love of God and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ without explaining the why of it, 
it will not sink in. It will not make an impact on people's lives. They will just look on Jesus as a nice guy. A lot of people that like Jesus, you know that? He's a nice guy. Wouldn't harm a fly. And you can portray him as Mel Gibson did and never ever understand that he died for your sins on the cross to make you right with God. So here, to finish the thought on propitiation, without this appeasement or propitiation, all people are justly destined for eternal punishment. How do you feel about that? Do we all deserve hell or do we all deserve heaven? Do we all deserve eternal separation from God or eternal life from God? What do we deserve? Well, let's look at our record. What does our record say? We have all fallen short and continue to fall short of the glory of God. Not a one of us, not a one of us in this room this morning has loved God with all of our hearts. Right? And consequently, because we haven't loved God with all of our hearts, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. So we all fall short. And that's why this but now is so important, is so significant. Because where is the hope? Where is the good news? If our record is so bad and we fall short of this standard of God, well, the good news, of course, is in the significance of why Jesus Christ died on the cross. So propitiation, here one man says propitiation introduces us to rituals at a shrine. It focuses on the wrath of God, which was placated, placated by the cross. And then he goes on to say, to propitiate somebody means to appease or pacify his anger. Well, we don't think of God as being angry, do we? Well, many do when they read the Old Testament. They say the Old Testament God is an angry God. He's a God of vengeance. He's a God of judgment. His wrath is clearly shown in the flood, for example. Sodom and Gomorrah, different examples of where his wrath and anger is poured out. Give me the God of the New Testament any day. Because that is a God of love. That is a God of grace. That is a God of justification. Even though they probably wouldn't use that term, though Paul does, and he makes a big deal of it. And then I say, hey, which New Testament are you reading? Because when I see John the Baptist, who is one of the first persons mentioned in, in the Gospels, he says, flee from the wrath to come. Jesus said something similar. And of course, the book of Revelation, the last, very last book in the Bible, talks a lot about the wrath of God. If I gave you a study just on the wrath of God, solely on the wrath of God, you would be overwhelmed at how big a theme that is in Scripture. Because God hates sin, and God will not have sin in His universe period. End of discussion. sooner we realize that is the sooner we're going to understand the amazing thing that Jesus Christ did on the cross. So here he says, why is propitiation necessary? 
It's necessary because sin arouses the wrath of God. The wrath of God is this steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil. It's not God losing his temper. It's God hating with every fiber of his being any form of sin. And hey, what do we inherit from Adam and Eve? What do we do from day to day but sin? So his uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its, its forms and manifestations, God himself in his holy wrath needs to be propitiated. Who made this propitiation? Well, God himself, and in the NIV it says presented, RSV says put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice. And that's our text in Romans 3.25. God loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation, propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 And if it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. So something that some Christians absolutely hate, the wrath of God, terms like propitiation, terms like the blood of Christ, get all of this stuff people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the phrase blood out of the hymn book. Can you believe something like that? It's true. Because man in his wisdom thinks he knows better than God. So man in his so-called Christian wisdom says the love of God has no place for the wrath of God. The love of God has no place for terms like propitiation, and has no place for a bloody God. Carry on with your philosophy of the love of God, and what you end up with is universalism. God will save everybody. It's a distorted understanding of love. The only way that you and, understand, you and I understand love, certainly in its respects to God, is by what we see revealed in Scripture. You and I could not figure out that this higher being is loving in the way that he loves. Even the, the unfallen angels could not comprehend the love of God. But when they saw Jesus Christ dying on the cross, they got a picture of the love of God that they could never have got any other way. And of course, especially so, human beings, because Jesus died for those human beings. And then he goes on to say, the propitiatory sacrifice was the person of God himself. When God gave his son, he gave himself. Thus we are freed from the divine anger and judgment. Why are we freed from that divine anger and judgment? Aren't we sinners? Don't we deserve that anger and punishment? Because Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, he was like the mother. You've, you've, you, we still have these stories, they come out now. If there's an earthquake, you'll have a parent who will shield the body of the child. So the building's coming down. Instantly the adult knows it's a crisis. There's an earthquake. This whole heavy structure is going to come down on my little baby, my little child. So what does the parent do? Covers. Covers the child with their body. And very often they'll find the mother has died and the child survives. So what happened on the cross of Calvary? 
On the cross of Calvary, Jesus shielded the human race, so to speak, with his body. That was stricken by God for you and for me. He took the wrath of God. He took the punishment of God on the cross so that you and I do not take that judgment and that punishment and that wrath from God upon ourselves. So, to understand in a biblical way this idea of propitiation, you find it all the way through the Bible. We have this long uh, pictorial imagery of these animal sacrifices. Some of you are, are uh, Jake is interested in studying the sanctuary at the, at the moment. Well, that's what you're going to find. You're going to find all these animal sacrifices. Why these cute little innocent animals? Why do they have to die? Well, they don't just have to die. It doesn't just say that they die. It says that their blood had to be shed. It's not enough. Not enough just for Jesus to die. Jesus' blood had to be shed. It's a sacrificial death on our behalf. Was it, certainly in Levitical times, was it smelly? Was it messy? Sure. Do you think it was any better on the cross? Just see Mel, Mel Gibson's movie and you'll know it was, it was a mess. And yet it's spoken of, of the hour of Christ's glory in the Gospel of John. It's, it's the pinnacle of his ministry. Everything was pointing forward to the significance of Jesus dying on the cross. One person is speaking about Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where we speak speaks of the curses and the blessings. He says, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these curses come in handfuls. They are awful threats, which may first appear out of all proportion to the sins committed. But sin, being a breach of the covenant, is an affront to the covenant God and an insult to His infinite majesty. The curses included hunger and thirst, desolation, poverty, the scorn of passers-by, darkness, earthquake, being cut off from among the people, death by hanging on a tree, a brass heaven, and no help when one cries for help. And then he goes on to speak about Jesus. Christ was hungry. He was so poor that he had no place to lay his head. On the cross he cried, I am thirsty. He was mocked and derided and deserted by his friends. He was hanged on a tree as a cursed man and cut off from his people. And as he hung on the cross, the heavens were as brass. He was as one who cried for help and receives none. He died as the great covenant breaker and endured the unbated fury of all the covenant curses. And the cosmic sp scope of the curses is portrayed in Matthew. And as Christ bore the sins of the broken covenant, darkness descended over the land. The earth shook and the rocks split. But by dying, Jesus carried away the curses of the covenant. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He died for our sins. Another man puts it this way. 
with the proceedings before God's throne reach their most abysmal point. With this, the proceedings before God's throne reach their most abysmal point. No wonder Jesus cries out to the Father who sent him, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No wonder darkness shrouds the whole world. This is the horrible judgment of the living God. The words anger, curse, sin, cross, crucified with him cannot be sweetened. They cannot be relativized. They present an offense. And that cannot be removed by any wisdom. In spite of Jesus' truthfulness and love, all of God's anger reigns here. Here is hellish thirst and torment the God-forsakenness of God's own child. And in the death of His Son, God not only makes felt what it means to bear sins and to die under the curse, He feels it Himself. Sin and death are no longer alien to God. Now everything that has to do with the living, obeying, hoping, achieving, doing, suffering, and dying of man has been incorporated into the relation between Father and Son. And as it is manifested, it cries out to heaven. Here God openly stands against God. The Father against the Son. The benevolent, promising God addressed in prayers against what God makes and allows in the world of facts and events. No theoretical or doctrinal theodicy is able to break in and save the day. Even the true and loving Son can only ask, why have you? The earth trembles. The sun fades away. This is the horror of the judgment, and God is silent. An eclipse of the living God, a victory of death over life, the end of all religion, all law and justice, all morality. It is this that comes in at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. A hell deeper and hotter than anything white one might imagine, has opened its maw, devoured God's Son, and become all victorious. The one true God has let Himself for me, lost man and hopeless, be given unto death. The judgment is, adorn is adjourned at this time to reconvene day after tomorrow at the crack of dawn. What a powerful way of describing the judgment that came upon Jesus Christ for your sins and for my sins on Calvary. Do we want to throw out that word propitiation? Throw it out and you throw out the gospel. You throw out the significance of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to wrap up. What can we say? We can summarize this way. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God's wrath came fully upon Him. So it will not come fully upon you and on me. Praise Him. Fall in love with Him for that fact alone. And there's much more in these verses that we haven't spoken about. We can do that some other day. It says those who have faith and belief in the death of Jesus Christ are justified freely. No strings attached. God, in chapter 4, verse 5, justifies the righteous. 
Those who are trying so hard to please him? Those who keep the commandments of God? Is that what it says? No. It says God justifies the ungodly. The worst of the worst. But those he justifies in verse 24 of Romans are the ones he sanctifies and are the ones he's going to glorify. When God makes a man or woman right with himself, he doesn't leave them there. The freedom that he brings them into, the emancipation that they're brought into, is into a life of holiness, into a life of pleasing God, into a life of obeying Him. But notice that the obedience doesn't come except through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that you ever in your heart of hearts want to be in your relationship to God only comes through or by the Lord Jesus Christ. Good God, Study this material. I will preach on it in the future, but don't wait till then. If you want to be excited about your Christianity, if you want to reason it out, if you want to be able to look people in the eye who are so focused on doing stuff to appease God, you can change their whole focus by understanding what Jesus has done for you and turning their minds to understand that, that so that they can experience the freedom that comes from no longer being a slave to sin, but being a child of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for allowing your son to come and die for the human race. This must have been really hard for you to let him come and suffer what he did. But we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, give each person the assurance that they are right with you. If we're not right with you, Lord, we want you to really do a job on us. Work us over. Get our attention. Help us to see our need. But Lord, if we are in a right relationship with you, help us to enjoy the freedom that you have brought us in Christ Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.